0: This is the first time I have killed with my hands, whom I can see close at hand, whose death is my doing. Cat and Krop, and Mueller have experienced it already. When they have hit someone, it happens to many, in hand-to-hand fighting especially. But every gasp lays my heart bare. This dying man has time with him. He has an invisible dagger with which he stabs me. Time and my thoughts... I would give much if he would but stay alive. It is hard to lie here and to have to see and hear him. In the afternoon, about three, he is dead. I breathe freely again, but only for a short time. Soon the silence is more unbearable than the groans. I wish the gurgling were there again, gasping, hoarse, now whistling softly, and again hoarse and loud. Another painful moment, is retold in All Quiet on the Western Front, which we are wrapping up today here on Literary Guys. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallum.
1: I'm author Zachary Kellyan. Weirdly enough, that scene was later adapted into a buddy
0: comedy. Was this All Quiet on the Western Front Part 2 All-American Girl? <laughs> probably was. That
1: scene in that, like, shallow shell divot uh, in the middle of No Man's Land, yeah, where Paul has to, I mean, he doesn't really even stab a guy. He stabs at something. He mm-hmm. lashes out. He's face first in the water just trying to avoid the shelling. Something falls on top of him. He starts stabbing at it with his trench knife, and then the next thing you know, he's spending the next 18, 24, 36 hours. I, I don't know how long he's actually in that hole mm-hmm. with the slowly dying Frenchman. It's one of the more harrowing death scenes I can recall in a novel of any kind.
0: And it's to a random individual. Yep. Like, this isn't someone who we've done deep character development on and then we're going to feel the impact of the loss of someone we know. This is, to use the, the term of the times, this is a rando who just happened to be there and yet it is destroying Paul that, to that these be there in this closest of proximities. That these two random people... That their fates should be so forever
1: intertwined is uh, unfortunately, I guess, a story as old as war. Mm-hmm. You know, this guy who moments before was this nameless, faceless enemy that it was either us versus them kind of mentality now becomes this cobbler with a wife and a family mm-hmm. who has dreams and aspirations and they don't even speak any words to one another. Uh, Paul speaks some words to him, trying to comfort him when he starts tending to his wounds. But what a bizarre thing. Minutes ago, you were trying to kill this guy. You're still in a war trying to kill men just like him. But that humanity that kind of takes over in that depression in the ground is is a really, I think, startling scene. And I would imagine played out quite often. We hear, especially in World War One, we hear about like the Christmas truce, right? Mm-hmm. Where a bunch of guys on the German and the English side just called a truce on Christmas Day, played a couple soccer games together and, you know, exchanged tobacco and gifts and everything like that. And then the very next day went right back to killing one another. It's tough to know what to make of it and really to wrap your mind around it, that we as these human animals can be capable of such violence, can stab somebody, you know, through the gut face-to-face one minute and then tend to the wound the next minute with utter sympathy.
0: Well, I think that brings into this whole conversation one of the things that I think is core to masculinity in a bad way, I will say, is the ability to dehumanize. Yeah. Like, so much of masculinity is wrapped around suppressing emotion and using that to focus, to be able to say, I'm going to put all these things aside and all these feelings and I'm just going to focus on the job at hand we as humans have become really really good at learning how to dehumanize each other
1: well, you see it in like the wartime propaganda from World War One, where the Germans were these barbaric Huns and they had spikes coming out of their helmets and these horrible cartoonish villains with these, you know, snidely whiplash handlebar mustaches and they're, you know, dashing babies against, you know, pikes and... Flames of hell are going up around them. It, it's so comical to see it back then and mm-hmm. then to see this from the German perspective written by a German and how they are just like us and just trying to get by just like us. It's easy to say, you know, well, we don't have those kind of propaganda anymore, but I'm sure we well, could I think talk. we
0: absolutely do. Yeah,
1: I'm sure we could talk at length about some of the more recent enemies, quote unquote, of the United States, like the, you know, um, extremist terrorists or whatever. I feel because of the, some of the innocent lives that have been taken by terrorism like some of our actions might be justified but how much of that is real versus how much of that is propaganda and how much of these this nameless faceless enemy that we've once again demonized in our culture are at the end of the day scared 18 and 19 year old kids just trying to get by
0: and that is another aspect of the story, which, if you read this and you didn't have the context that these were 18 and 19-year-olds, like you would believe that these are grizzled, Oof, yeah. like they've been out there for decades and all that. It, it's so amazing to see how quickly that has been torn away and that we talk so much in society about early childhood development, but there's a lot of development that goes on in the late teens and early 20s to understand who you are as a person and for these individuals that was just kicked out entirely like they never had any of that they were told who they were Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: yeah the the last quarter of this novel is structured really interestingly too you know we don't get to an earlier comment you made we don't get a ton of deep character insight into any of the characters paul included really Mm -hmm. But we start to get far less by the end of it. And huge battles are reduced to just mere snippets or afterthoughts. And these big life-changing moments after this human-to-human tragedy that happens with Paul and the French shoulder in the um, no-man's land, anything after that, it does feel a little stripped of humanity, um, where it's just going through the paces. You know, we did this this day, we did that this day, this horrible thing happened, that horrible thing happened. Mueller, by the way, is dead, you know, just as an afterthought. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really is kind of stark how, what little humanity there may have been in the narrative voice that uh, remark kind of put into this character is even gone after this incident. Yeah.
0: I keep thinking about the scenes where the caskets just show up, the empty caskets. Yeah. Like, that is a very shuddering thought. And you're right. I think the repetition of war, the inconsequentiality, if I'm going to make up a word here, that Mm -hmm. might actually be a word, of what was going on, really just made the rest of life seem inconsequential too. There's so many good quotes in this book. I think you and I have been saying that maybe there isn't enough opportunity here you know, with just a couple episodes to get into the beautiful language, but there is one that I want to read and then one more to kind of wrap up the episode here. At once, a new warmth flows through me. These voices, these quiet words, these footsteps in the trench behind me recall me at a bound from the terrible loneliness and fear of death of which I had been almost destroyed. They are more to me than life, these voices. They are more than motherliness and more than fear. They are the strongest, most comforting thing there is anywhere. They are the voices of my comrades. I am no longer a shuddering speck of existence, alone in the darkness. I belong to them and they to me. We all share the same fear and the same life. We are nearer than lovers in a simpler, a harder way. I could bury my face in them, in these voices, these words that have saved me and will stand by me.
1: Yeah, that's such a perfect example of the tone that the last quarter of the book takes, where it's almost like this kind of metaphysical philosophy that he starts having about life. You get these brief moments of like abject terror, like when they're trying to uh, escape another bombing, both injured, and Paul says something to the fact of, like, our feet could have been blown off and we would have run on stumps. We were so scared. You get these like heightened moments of adrenaline, and then mm-hmm. everything else, all the paragraphs around it are just like, Pontificating about what place do they as soldiers have in the world anymore after what they've seen and what place does humanity have in the world after what it's done to itself in this war. I wonder how many men are able to kind of sit back and kind of think like that in wartime and how much of this is an author who experienced the war firsthand himself and was able to, you know, after a decade, kind of digest all of this and and put it to paper. But I I think it's got to have some real truth to it in terms of the change that must happen in a person, in terms of how they look at the world once they see humanity's drive to destroy itself on such a visceral
0: level. All they have is each other. Yeah, That really is the message here, that their society, for lack of a better word, has betrayed them, and they've been cast out. They've been told that they are heroes, and yet the same people who are telling them that they're heroes have cast them away. It's definitely not a positive view of war, and as we've said multiple times here, that this is an anti-war novel. Mm-hmm. It is not celebrating these soldiers. I find that very interesting. Like there are the things that happen to make life livable, as we talked about last episode, like folks like Kat, but there really are no heroes. Mm-mm. in this book I, and i'm not this is not to say that there are not heroes in more time but they are not in this novel they're not and it really
1: is interesting to contrast it as we've done several times with this novel with the bridges of tokori mm-hmm. which is also an anti-war novel but does focus on the nature of heroism in a lot more detail you know there are heroes in the bridges of tokori there are men who do things that seem above and beyond what most men should be called to do and and who do so freely and willingly and not just out of a sense of fear or self-preservation. But I really like what Eric Maria Remarque does with this because certainly at the time that this was coming out, we're in an era right now where literature is, you know, dime store Western novels where you got guys in black hats and guys in white hats, and it's glorified to take out 20 of your enemy with, you know... A six-shooter and then ride off into the sunset, and that's just not the reality of it, you know. uh, It it is
0: of the book cover that I have for the (laughs) e-book, though. I mean, you pretty much described the novel that it uh, seemed to imagine this was going to be about.
1: Yeah, we will put that atrocious e-novel cover up online for you guys to uh, mock and deride as well but um, I would imagine if you talked to Remark about his experiences I'm sure he saw some heroism
0: oh absolutely and and again I I don't want to say that that's not happening here but that is not the way that he portrays these characters
1: and wisely so I think because he he really did have to put a very dark mirror to society for us to you know at this time to recognize what we had just done this was the first mechanized war you know warfare had never before looked like this and really hasn't since you know in any grand scale military conflict we don't have chemical weapons anymore. That Even our worst enemies can all agree that that's humane. But in World War II, every side was just trying out a new different concoction of cyanide and mustard gas and whatever they could kind of put together to, to see how they could inflict pain on others. It really is a singular moment in the history of humanity, let us hope, but one that I think is very important to have documented in such a realistic and stark way.
0: So let me ask you a question because you, you kind of opened the door to this, so I've got to ask. But do you believe that the everyman quality of the characters in this novel makes it a more powerful message that someone reading it would be not thinking about those heroic acts? Or thinking, you know, I'm going to go out there and be that hero or the hero is, you know, someone who's not me. I'm just a school teacher or I'm just mm-hmm. a postman, as the case is in this novel of two of the characters. Do you think that this every man quality kind of makes this book that much more terrifying to the people reading it?
1: For sure. And that much more effective in, in the spreading of its message. I mean, this upon its release... Was almost instantly translated into nearly a dozen languages. Became a worldwide bestseller because, again, it's it is about the German experience of World War One, but it is not about being German. Right? You know, we we aren't uh, really treated to any cultural attributes or you know any kind of uh, linguistic eccentricities or anything like that that would really identify this as German other than the fact that they say that they are. And I think to your point about the characters not being super in-depth in their sketches is very important because it allows you to kind of place your sympathies with all of them at once. We don't know much about Paul's life, but there's a moment where Paul is thinking about giving some uh, cakes that his mom has baked to some of the Russian soldiers who are in the prison, and then feels this pang of guilt because his mom is terminally ill with cancer, and he realizes, man, she must have really pained herself, taken great pains and anguish to cook these cakes for me in maybe some of the last moments of her mobility, and, and just can't quite bring himself to do that instead saves the cakes until they get moldy and then shares them with his friends on the front line. And, and it, you know that little moment is something I could certainly relate to. You know recognizing your mom's sacrifice and having that little pang of homesickness in an utterly surreal and terrifying time. And I, I think it's very wise that these are character archetypes more than they are fully flesh-and-blood fictional characters.
0: I think that probably would have been a good thought to start off this whole set of episodes with. I think If I read it with what you just said, I think I would have gotten even more out of this novel Mm -hmm. because I kept looking for that character development. And now seeing that it was part of the literary device makes it more appealing, for lack of a better word.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think in a lesser author's hands, I think it would have made this a weaker novel but he gives you just enough from each character. I mean, we could sit here and say one or two really interesting character-defining facts about each and every one of the guys in his unit, even though we probably couldn't tell you what their last names were with any degree of certainty or their first names. And I think that that's really brilliant. He shows the sparks of humanity that matter for each man, but he doesn't really sketch them out in any concrete way because to do so would make this much more a seven school buddies from Germany who, right, right. who go off to war, and, and that's not what this novel's about at all. This w- novel should be equally relevant for the Americans and the British and the French who read it.
0: Well, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the ending of this book.
1: You mean when your gut just drops out from under you and you just feel nothing but emptiness inside?
0: Yes, exactly. Let's get the, Crystal the over
1: ending. here and, uh, and refill our cognacs that we've been drinking, just so we can fill a little bit of that emptiness inside before we, uh, we read this next passage. This is the last passage of the book, and for my money, probably one of the best final paragraphs in any work of literature.
0: I stand up. I am very quiet. Let the months and years come. They can take nothing from me. They can take nothing more. I am so alone and so without hope that I can confront them without fear. The life that has borne me through these years is still in my hands and my eyes. Whether I have subdued it, I know not. But so long as it is there, it will seek its own way out, heedless of the will that is within me. He fell in October 1918,
1: on a day that was so quiet and still on the whole front that the Army report confined itself to the single sentence all quiet on the western front. He had fallen forward and lay on the earth as though sleeping. Turning him over, one saw that he could not have suffered long. His face had an expression of calm, as though almost glad the end had come.
0: That quote is the continuous text of the ending of the book, How is it formatted in your version?
1: Yeah, so I'm actually, I'm reading it from an original 1929 copy of the English version of All Quiet in the Western Front. And throughout the novel, it's separated into chapters. But one of the things that the typesetters did that's so brilliant is anytime there's a break in chronology, there are two stars, um, two little stars that kind of break up the text. And the only time it deviates from that is that very last paragraph that I just read, um, where there are three stars and such a kind of shocking typesetting decision when you're reading it on the page. But then you realize when you get to He Fell that, well, they're talking about Paul and then this is a, a, an unknown omniscient narrator that is just stepping in for the very end for the part of the story that the narrator could not tell in his own words. And when I read that, I, I really had a, a feeling of just profound emptiness. It just felt like my in, entire insides just emptied out. It's such a stark, grim way to end the novel, so close to the war's end. And yet also strangely beautiful because after all that he's been through and all the worry he had about how he could possibly adapt to society after this and having lost all his friends, to know that he almost looked like he was sleeping and that he have been glad the end had come. There's a weird brightness to it too. It's, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's genius. It's, it's one of the greatest closings of any novel, I think, of all time. I'll, I'll fight anybody on that.
0: The version I had, there was no break at all. It was just the beginning of a new sentence, wow. and it caught me completely off guard. Yeah, because I was like, "Wait a second. Like I, I didn't even notice the narrator had changed. The, which, which you was, wouldn't. I mean, the, no. I mean, no. no it's narrator it's not a device which is used yeah. anywhere else yeah. in this whole book. Wow. To to pull that out, and you're right. That image of him smiling. Uh, I'm trying to think of there's been films I think that have ended with a similar metaphor of someone you know smiling in in death and only thing I can't figure out was this intentional did he knowingly stand up
1: interesting you know I hadn't really thought about because we yeah we do know wasn't any action happening at this time how did he die
0: was he I- tempting fate was he was this sort of the equivalent of Death by police officer and you know, civilian times, and I, I don't know. You
1: know, this is this is going off memory because there is a a very famous Oscar-winning adaptation of this movie from the 1930s that I saw a long time ago. After this episode, we're going to adjourn and probably watch the new Netflix adaptation, which we hope you guys get a chance to kind of compare and contrast the novel with but i believe in the original you know black and white 1930s all quiet in the western front he peeks out of the trench is instantly kind of sniped and then the last images of a butterfly landing on him mm. if i remember correctly and man yeah i hadn't thought about that did paul want to die was that an intentional act certainly throughout we see characters who are just at their wits end and if it's it is said if they had a gun they would have shot themselves you know because of an amputation or because of the pain that they're in or just a sense of hopelessness that they're all dealing with and you get to the mental state of Paul towards the end where he's talking about far greater things than the war that's going on around him. And I guess you're right. You can't help but wonder if this was something intentional. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, and that makes it even sadder.
0: Well, I am grateful, I will say, that this was our listener's choice. Because, like so many things we've talked about here, it's like, oh, yes, I should read that. You know? yeah, yeah, Or yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't really have a reason to, and I feel like I'd walk away a better person for having read it. I and agree. And this is one that I wish more people would read it, and they won't. I think that this novel has a lot to say, and I think you've got to be willing to be open to it as well. That's one of the things about this. Like, I think you could read this book and be like, read it still with a somewhat jingoistic mindset, and be like, yeah, they, you know, they killed these people, and it was war makes men. You know, for Mm -hmm. lack of a better phrase. I think if you cherry-picked sections from it and read what you wanted to read, I think you could walk away from that. But I think if you genuinely read this book, that there is no way that it cannot impact you and see the damage that war does. You can't help but wonder if everyone had read this book, if we would still be having wars the way we are. I don't know. But at least in our way here, we'll keep doing this podcast and hoping that the nature of masculinity becomes more introspective and hopefully can recognize the folly of its ways. With that, I think it is time that we wrap things up here. We are going to be returning next month with an equally like just uplifting <laughs> novel here I don't know how we wrapped up the end of the year going into the holiday season you know but what at least it,
1: it's fictional at least it's exactly, like <laughs> at, yeah. least it's, at least you can pretend uh, like the characters don't exist in real life even though they probably Timing it with one of our great masters of the English language's first publication in 16 years. Two publications. Yeah, we are gonna be tackling a classic from Cormac McCarthy, No Country for Old Men, also a brilliantly adapted Coen Brothers film. Cormac McCarthy, for better or for worse, has become an American voice. I say for better or for worse, mostly because of the themes that he tackles, not because of the writing, which is really second to none. Excited to read Passengers when it comes out, um, I think, in the middle of November. We'll be reading one of his breezier, easier yeah. reads, ha- believe having, it
0: or not. Having taken your advice and read Blood Meridian Blood Meridian, or yes. An Evening's Redness in the West. Yes, yes, yes. That, that I can vouch for the fact that the book that we're reading on Literary Guys is definitely a lighter and more accessible piece uh, that doesn't have as many, but still has many troubling themes and areas of the human psyche that I would not normally venture into. But it's one that I think, if you haven't read, it's probably the best way to get into Cormac McCarthy's writing. Yeah. And you'll appreciate how similar and different it is from the film. It's Mm -hmm. really fascinating that I think they both make the other piece better. Like, I appreciate Mm. the book in the context of having seen the film, and I appreciate the film in the context of having read the book.
1: I think that's very true. I think it's dealing with some really complex themes using violence as a painting brush kind of but i think you almost do need to view it in two mediums to really kind of appreciate some of the depth that mccarthy is going into
0: so until next time please if you haven't already like our podcast talk about it on social media hopefully in a good way and we will be back soon
1: and suggest some more upbeat reads for us next year please Yeah, we're gonna
0: need some although we are already thinking about season three and got some ideas for that too, so now's the time to get those into the queue. So until then, this has been Literary Guys, signing off.